Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the show. On this episode, I got a chance to sit down with one of my favorite authors, Christopher McDougall, who wrote Born to Run, Natural Born Heroes, and his most recent book, Running with Sherman, The Donkey with the Heart of a Hero. I coincidentally bumped into Chris walking across the street outside of my apartment in LA. I spotted him uh, with bare feet, looked like he just finished up a run and had to stop him in the street and say hello and tell him how much I enjoyed his books. Born to Run is one of the best books that I've probably ever read or listened to, and I can't recommend it enough. It's such an amazing story, and Chris has really developed a beautiful style of storytelling, interweaving research and science and all sorts of cultural side stories to the main entertaining narrative that he is usually a part of himself. Uh, His most recent book is Running with Sherman after bringing a donkey home and rehabilitating him. They work on growing their relationship and eventually running a borough race in Colorado. And uh, it was great to chat with him about the podcast, about running, spirituality, cold plunges, and much more. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. I'm really excited to share with you something that's been very special and impactful in my life. And that is the Czech Institute Holistic Life Coach Level 1 online course. I took this about two years ago myself, and it's really geared around helping you to be able to manage yourself in all aspects of life. Holistic is a word that Paul Jack and his institute do not take lightly, and I can attest to the changes and ways that it's helped me learn and become a better person for myself and others. For the month of May, Into the Well is offering a special discount code, and that is Into the Well all lowercase, all one word with no spaces, for a $100 discount from this online program you can find through the Czech Institute. Again, I can't recommend this enough, whether you work with clients or you just want to feel better. It's an amazing resource, and I learned a lot, and I hope that you'll get something out of this as well. Again, that's into the well, all lowercase, one word with no spaces, for $100 off the Holistic Life Coach level one online course of the Czech Institute. Yeah, I hope you enjoy the new episode. Thank you. All right. Well, I just want to start by saying uh, thanks again for taking the time and uh, coming on this, on the podcast and chatting with me. Um, You know, I've been reading, I've read your last three books now and they've made quite an impact on me. And it was pretty funny that we sort of met by just happenstance of me spotting you crossing the street in front of my apartment a couple months ago. Yeah, that was so strange to me too, because I was like lost in my own thoughts. I think I'd only been in LA for like a day. And uh, to have somebody call me by name from across the street was really kind of kind of jolting. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you get recognized out wherever you are very often? I'm sure not so much in your in your hometown, but when you're in uh, like bigger cities. That's the cool thing about it, because out here in Lancaster. Nobody knows about barefoot running or born to run or natural born heroes and nobody cares. You know, my, mm-hmm. my neighbors are all farmers and 
not big readers. And so, um, yeah, so I live out here most of the year in complete isolation. And then every once in a while, I'll like go to New York and be at Penn Station and I'll have like three like, uh, Wall Street brokers, like, you know, uh, come charging up to me and, and ask me to sign stuff for them. So <laughs> it, it really is weird and it comes out of the blue. But, my, but my favorite thing, is it when people recognize me? It's when they think I'm somebody else. So <laughs> multiple times people have come up to me and asked if I'm barefoot Ted. Uh, <laughs> that's really funny. Well, I, was, I made a note to kind of <laughs> mention him yeah. later on in the podcast because it seems like you guys have a really sort of funny rapport. Like you're often sort of making fun of him and the picture you paint of him is is quite amusing in, in the book, of course. But you're still friends and, and you, I know you wear his sandals, the Luna sandals and... Um, seem to have a good relationship with them still too. Well, you know, it's funny. You start to realize things in life about yourself where you realize, man, like your own judgments are just wrong, mm-hmm. you know, are just wrong. And I don't know. It's, uh, maybe that's actually common for most people. It was an eye opener for me because I, I mostly go through life thinking that I'm pretty much right. You know, yeah. <laughs> every once in a while, yeah, I'll make a mistake about things, but I, I look at myself as being like a good soul, a good person and generally, pretty much on the ball. And then every once in a while, you just get one of these like slams in the face where you have to confront the fact that, no, dude, you were just wrong. Um, <laughs> and everything about your orientation system was wrong. For me, it was really about barefoot Ted. And to this day, when I find my like irritation level growing with him, I just got to take a breath and go, no, dude, he is like a lovely wild creature on the planet. And, and getting upset with barefoot Ted is like getting upset with like a lemur, you know, or, or a, a Rottweiler. They're just doing what they do. And if you can't handle it, well, you're just in, in the wrong part of the wild kingdom. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's such a great lesson, you know, for life in general is to feel into when those judgments come up and sort of turn it in on yourself and see where maybe, you know, there's something, uh, out of alignment with your own way of existing that maybe you're jealous or maybe, you know, you wish you were a little bit more wild like that. Well, you know, here's what happened with me. And it was a really bizarre collateral benefit of Born to Run because for that book, a group of strangers were suddenly plunged into this adventure together. You know, it was uh, Jen and Billy and Scott and Luis and I and, and Ted and Caballo. And so, it was like we we're on this life raft together adrift in the Pacific. You know, suddenly we're isolated from the rest of the world. We don't know each other and we have to get along under stressful conditions. And Kabayo and I both were just irritated to the point of like homicide by Ted. He was driving us <laughs> insane, irritating every freaking nerve. But later on, when we finished the adventure and then I decided to write this book, I went back to re-report everything. And what I did was I went and visited and spent time with every single person that I was down there in the canyons with. And the first people were like Jen and Billy because they lived near me in, they're in Virginia, I'm in Pennsylvania. And I thought to Luis, and what I started to realize was everybody else was really tickled by Ted. They really liked him. They found him super entertaining, really charming. And it made me ask myself, well, dude, if everybody else likes him, what the fuck's your problem? You know? Yeah. And then when I finally got to spend time with him one on one alone, I got it. You know, I sort of see what it was. He's a performer, you know, and if there's more than one person in the audience and he is on stage, if it's just you one on one. So once, once you realize that, that he's there to just eat all the oxygen, then just go with it. Yeah. 
No, that's definitely very interesting. So did you do all those one-on-one visits with people sort of after the whole adventure and then before you're finishing the book? Or was it after the book? No, no, it was uh, to research the book. What had happened was, you know, I didn't know, I, I didn't go down to the Copper Canyons expecting to write a book. I thought I was just going to do uh, another magazine article. Um, but so many things happened down there. And th- the interesting thing about the people that I was down there with is that they're all these kind of weird backwoods running philosopher savants. Uh, Scott Jorick, for instance, has thought a lot about a lot of things. You know, mm-hmm. he's like this sub Terranean tunnel full of like ancient knowledge. Uh, he's a relatively quiet guy, but he knows everything. Uh, Barefoot Ted, in his own wacky way, is uh, a rambling philosopher. He thinks a lot. He gets ideas. Um, uh, Luis Escobar, the same way. Caballo, of course. Anyways, what, what I found myself was surrounded by people who weren't just these really cool ultra-athletes, but super deep, really entertaining, insightful people that could cast a lot of light on this activity that I personally was, was new to. I was, I was kind of a new runner. And that's when I realized, oh, man, this is a great vehicle for a book. And so that's when I decided, before I write it, what I'm going to do is, is circle back and do two things. Uh, visit each one of them to not only get their own backstories, like, you know, mm-hmm. Jen, where did you come from? You know, who are you? But also their perceptions. Uh, I wanted to have, like, as many cameras on the action as possible. So I interviewed them about, hey, you know, Jen, where are you from? How did you become a runner? What's your story? Also, you tell me what you saw down in the Copper Canyon. So that way I had not only my perceptions, but Jen's, Billy's, and Luis's. And so it was like having a million drone cameras, or not a million, mm-hmm. specifically seven drone cameras out in the race course, all tracking the same race. Yeah, that's a really cool approach. And I guess a good way to get more of an intimate view of all those different perspectives and like the part of the story where Jen and her partner ended up drinking out of the mud water and stuff like that. Maybe you wouldn't have been able to recount so well without that input. Exactly. Yeah. And... um. It was also cool, too, that particular instance, uh, I, I had my perception, uh, I had Eric's, I had Jen and Billy's as soon as we found them, they told us what was happening, mm-hmm. and I was actually recording it, I had a tape recorder in my hand, and then afterwards, you know, a couple months later, I could circle back and say, like, tell me now, like, mm-hmm. what you remember of that, and, and how it's, it's kind of filtered in, so, yeah, it was a really rare opportunity to get a lot of different inputs on the same tale. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know, like, obviously people write in so many different ways, but your books are so rich in terms of the science and the research. Then there's the story itself and all these sort of parallel stories and backstories. How long does it take to put together a story like Born to Run or Natural Born Heroes or these things? You know, it takes me typically two years, but I'm not sure how much of that is hard time and how much of that is, is soft time. Um, I'm working on a book right now and I'm never quite sure if it, if it needs to take two years or if I just allow it to take two years. Um, but I like to think that I spent a lot of time thinking and, and mulling things over and, and finding different avenues to pursue. Um, but maybe that's the, in the end, that's the right answer. Like, what's the hurry? Uh, mm-hmm. if it takes two years, then it takes two years and just let, let it ride. 
Yeah, I guess from an outside perspective, I've never written a book or anything, but that doesn't seem like a crazy amount of time considering the sort of richness of the tapestry that make up your books. Yeah, thank you. Because I imagine there's just a lot of like finding different threads and following your nose in a lot in a lot of directions. Yeah, I, I mean, I, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm not sure. So I, I guess that part of me is that you know, puritanical work ethic, where if you're not grinding out every second, then you're loafing. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, I also think that ideas need to really sprout and germinate and things come together at their own pace. And if you're in the wrong mindset, you know, if you're in this sort of puritanical, got to drive it out, got to get the words out, 2000 words a day, that's going to come across in the page. The, 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 the story isn't going to be as fun. It's not going to be as Kinetic, you know, it's not going to be as action packed, I guess. So I don't know. Basically, I'm, I'm, I'm on the horns of a dilemma. I don't know if I am <laughs> explaining why it takes so long or just rationalizing it. It's one of those two. Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely somewhere, somewhere in the middle where you're not forcing it out every day, but you're finding like a sort of natural pace that allows the sort of story to blossom in that, in that sense. I thought it was interesting how you mentioned you went down to the Copper Canyons, not even really you know, with the goal in mind to write a book. And now it's become this sort of phenomenon. I think it's, you know, when people ask me, what are my favorite books? It's always in my list. And, you know, I've recommended it to so many people, runners and non-runners. And it's, it's also just like changed how I look at running and my foot health and sort of some of the research that you shared. Um, you know, what was it like to sort of see that take on a whole life of its own with the whole sort of barefoot running movement and whatnot? Yeah, uh, you know, it was, it was a really cool education for me. And I think it really changed everything about my approach to both science and health and medicine, but also to writing. And I think it came from this idea that um, if you are not sure the answers, that's a good place to be. So I wrote Born to Run from this very kind of like, I don't really, I don't really know about this stuff, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it sounds a little strange to me. I'm not 100% sold on this barefoot running stuff. And that's, I think to me, is a very healthy way to approach any kind of mental challenge. Uh, so, I mean, basically the backstory was that, I don't know, I guess I was in my what? 40s, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I was in my early 40s. I hadn't run a step in years heavy, out of shape. And basically I had, you know, resigned myself to the fact that you, you can't run, you're too heavy and big and you'll get hurt. Mm-hmm. And then I, I find myself plunged into this environment where everybody's running and they're 70 years old and they're having a good time and they're smiling. And it's just so different than my experience of people kind of trudging along with their headphones in and being miserable and getting injured and buying expensive shoes. And then I'm down there with, you know, with Jen Shelton, who's just like flying across hundred milers and drinking Mountain Dew and drinking her face off at night. And the Tarumata who are like doing these big old like beer party orgies and then racing 300 miles. And so again, I was just, I was observing it, but I wasn't comprehending it. And that was literally the state of mind I was in when I started to write the book. So the book becomes an exercise in trying to figure this stuff out. And honestly, I, I, I suspect that's the reason why the book has resonated with people is because they're all finding themselves on page one exactly where I was on page mm-hmm. one. Like, yeah, listen, guys, I'm not sure where we're going here, man. We're, we're going into the woods without a guide. Let's just see where this takes us. 
And I've tried to recreate that with everything I've worked on since. Uh, Running with Sherman was a similar adventure. Natural Born Heroes, same thing. Didn't know the answers. And the book becomes a quest to try to find them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely love the format that you've come up with, with this sort of core story that's running through it. And then kind of all the parallel research and backstories of the characters and um, just it just makes it such an interesting read because the story is compelling, but then I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from, from each of the books, be it about Amish communities or barefoot running or um, like move Nad and Erwan Lacour and that whole sort of scene. It's been really sort of eye opening to me. And it's, I mean, it's affected my movement practices pretty holistically, I would say. Oh, is that right? What's um, what have you changed? Well, definitely, you know, the whole idea of like foot health and, you know, I have one of those people who've been like, Oh, Nike's putting out a new running shoe with all this technology and it's $300. It must be the best. I have to get it. And sort of, you know, thinking back like, Oh, that like bit about, um, how you shared in the in born to run, how often like people running in the most expensive runners have a higher, um, likelihood of injury was really interesting and sort of getting back to the basics, learning how to run, doing more sprinting uphill stuff so that, you know, my form is better for performance. It's better for, um, sort of stability. And then from there, you don't necessarily have to run barefoot. You can kind of run in any shoe if you've got the proper form and you're in alignment and carrying yourself in that way. I thought, you know, that was kind of interesting. And then one of the big things that's been a shift in my, my sort of approach to running and exercise has been bringing like joy and love to it, you know, which is something that you kind of touched on with Jen yeah. and a lot in running with Sherman as well, which yeah, the animals can bring out of you, it seems like, but also sort of when you're talking about some of the women, I can't remember the term, if it was like smile in a skirt or something, but that sort of idea of running with, with yeah, joy. yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Chrissy, Chrissy Mel up in uh, Bellingham, Washington. Uh, you know, here's here's the I don't remember if this is in the book. I got to go back. And re- <laughs> By the time you finish a book, sometimes you forget all the stuff that's in it. But um, one of the things about Chrissy, okay, this this woman is world class. You know, top of the ultra game. And I was at Scott York's wedding, and she was there, and everyone went out for this trail run together. And it's like Scott Jorick and Chrissy and all these other amazing runners and me, you know, the schlub at the back of the pack. And what I noticed was every time I would stop to like catch my breath or have a drink of water or tie my shoe, Chrissy was the only one who always dropped off the pack, circled back, picked me up, waited for me, and then made it seem like really chills if she was planning to tie her shoe again anyway. And this happened over and over again. And it just stuck in my mind, like, it's so natural to her to just be friendly and warm, even though for most dudes, their first instinct is to, to prove themselves. You know, they always want to be at the front of the pack, be out front, show that they're the toughest. And with her, that wasn't even a calculation at all. You know, her instinct was to be at the back of the pack and make sure that the straggler isn't, isn't lost by himself. So yeah, I mean, that to me is that that mindset is I think what powers her along. She'd rather have friends than have victories. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like, you know, with, especially when it gets into trail running and ultra trail stuff, the sense of community is such a strong thing, be it through the training or even at the races. Like when I started getting into the trail stuff, I was blown away at just how friendly everybody was. And it feels like quite different from the sort of traditional Western approach to sports and achieving. 
Yeah. Again, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing I wrestle with because it's something I'm working on now. I'm working on a new book now where I'm really trying to unpack this, this notion of competition because mm-hmm. there's definitely something valid there. You know, we all realize that we train harder, we're more consistent when we kind of got to come to glory moment on the calendar. Uh, when there's not a race in six months, you know, your training tends to get sloppy. And yet at the same time, I also feel that the competition is so destructive. It's uh, among the worst things we can do. Uh, I was actually corresponding this morning with a guy on Twitter who put a message out saying that I've been running, you know, every day since September and I still hate it. Like, how do you not hate running? And Mm. I was going back and forth with him, basically trying to unpack that dilemma he's having. But I think the hatred comes from the sense of competition of, of, of expectations and it makes you hurt, hate the thing that, that you should be enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you make take steps to sort of shifting that perspective? I think the idea is that you got to start dialing in super small first. Uh, make the competition on the small achievements, not mm-hmm. the big ones. And so... And I have a feeling, I, I'm wondering whether I've ever adequately expressed this in my books. Um, and I hope I have, but but I may not have. What I was trying to tell this guy this morning is what I do is I just focus literally on every step. I focus on form. And that may sound boring, like, oh, it's so repetitive. It's like doing drills. But if you focus on like driving that knee and cocking back that foot and landing lightly and popping that foot off the ground. If you get one step that feels mm-hmm. great, you know, there's a little triumph right there. And then you, you do the next step and the next step and you try to string together two or 300 steps that really feel like light and smooth and quick. And I am so dialed in and focused on that during a run that I, I'm like, I don't care if, if that run goes two miles or 20 miles. I don't care if I'm doing seven minutes a mile or 10 minutes a mile. Those things are extraneous. I'm not racing. I'm, I'm working on the craft. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's, we need to focus on craftsmanship over competition. Yeah, I think I think that's an important thing, both for our bodies and for that sort of enjoyment of it. And, you know, it's kind of like harkens back to just being present in that moment of that one step of that one breath. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film called 3100 run and become, but they feature a Navajo runner. Oh yeah. 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 And uh, uh, yeah. It, when he's running, uh-huh. he's sort of each step, he's sort of praying to mother earth. And with the breath, he's like having gratitude to father sky. And I think that's another way of sort of, again, staying present with, with each of those strides in a way that's just filled with a different sort of energy. Yeah. That was a beautiful sequence. Um, those cutbacks to, Navajo Nation. That is a remarkable film. Uh, I'm really, I really wish more people would see it because I find it a really perplexing film. Um, I, I get, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing what's going <laughs> on there, this free Chim Noi race. Uh, w- what was your takeaway from it? Well, definitely, you know, I think that idea of running to become a better person and to sort of exceed the boundaries that you feel you're capable of and, you know, growing that way. I think that's really powerful. Um, but it's obviously really extreme, (laughs) you know, it's like doing some sort of really long, deep meditation and and it can't be easy on the body, but I think that it's an interesting way to sort of 
grow yourself spiritually. Um, I feel like that's got to be the main sort of focus of it or goal of it. Yeah, I, I think I always wonder with extreme activities whether it's actually a path toward improvement or some kind of like self-medication mm. and self-isolation for other problems, you know, because I think the um, the perplexing thing about that film is that all the runners in themselves were so charming, you know, they're so cool and they had fun things to say and you liked all of them. At the same time, I felt like what they were doing was just not healthy. It was just, and then their own families felt the same way too. There's that Austrian woman Mm-hmm. You remember, I think uh, her husband and her kids are like, you kind of got to stop. You know, you're like, you're, you're running yourself into kidney failure. And so whatever was propelling her, it didn't feel like it was healthy. It felt like it had a real element of self-destruction to it. Yeah. And that's why I really wrestle with it. I love the idea of run and become. But with all these things, you know, there's um, there's a barrier you pass where you start ebbing into more harm than good. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's a really interesting point. I feel like a lot of that, you know, so many of us are motivated by some sort of subconscious, you know, fear that we're not enough. And so, you know, this way of proving that we can accomplish and we're good enough and we're worthy of love can drive us to some of these extreme pursuits. But I think it's when we can bring a healthier intention to them is when they're not so destructive. But I think probably more often than not, they are sort of destructive endeavors. Yeah, yeah. And then that's, that's the hard thing is figuring out what, what are the metrics? What are the signs? How do you know, you know, when you're on a good path or, mm-hmm. or a harmful one? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, bringing in some sort of, you know, mindfulness, meditative practice, hopefully, you know, if you work with a therapist or something that can help you uh, stay on track with that. And that kind of actually brings me to a question, um, you know, after reading Running with Sherman, it felt like, um, in that book specifically, you kind of dived into mental health a lot more. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it, it, it came by accident, uh, really by accident. I didn't expect it at all. And like Born to Run, I was kind of feeling my way into new terrain. Um, when we had our good friend's son, Zeke, really come across a life-threatening situation with depression and he wanted to come and run with us. And um, he developed that relationship with Sherman. It was uh, really kind of jarring because here's a guy that I really liked, I really cared a lot for, and I felt that I was in over my head. I, I really want to help him. I don't know how to do it. And at the same time, we're involved in this thing with these donkeys. And I don't know, it, it, it won't because it's, you know, working with donkeys and running with them is, is very frustrating. Uh, and it's bewildering and, and your stress levels will just get jacked through the roof because you're hot and you're tired and you've been running for two hours and you want to go home, but you can't because I got this freaking donkey and it won't go, you know? And so I was just afraid yeah. for somebody who's vulnerable. Like, oh, geez, I don't want to plunge this kid into this, especially because we're like out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Um, so that, 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 took me by surprise. I was like, okay, I got to sort of learn about depression. But then the second thing was, just coincidentally, I discovered that some of the top borough racers have been dealing with similar things, that the Juan family in Colorado has a son who's epileptic, and they got into borough racing 
because of, of his epilepsy and how Walter has a son who's uh, autistic. And he was led down that path because of a book called The Horse Boy about a, a young boy who is neurodiverse and found tremendous um, relief and comfort from working with horses. So, yeah, it, it cracked open a whole door of exploration that I never expected to to enter. Yeah, I thought like it was it was really interesting on sort of a twofold way because the way that working with the animals in that way is really seems to be like powerfully healing and connecting. But then also when you're talking about how um, athletes can sort of create that sort of up and down in their sort of neurological system that makes them more primed for depression. Yeah, I think that's the thing I'm getting at too with this double-edged sword of competition that, you know, we take something that's natural and we turn it into something that's unnatural. You know, swimming is a beautiful, healthy, luxurious exercise until you're bashing out laps at six o'clock in the morning at top speed every day. You know, you're doing things to your biochemistry that nature never really intended you to do. And, and that comes with a downside. Um, what was really kind of cool about dealing with the animals is that they don't naturally compete, really. You know, they, they, they survive and they thrive and they have their own prey and predator uh, scenarios. But, you know, a, um, a jaguar is not saying to itself, you know what, uh, six months from now, I am going to enter like the Jaguar Olympics. So I'm going to train every day. No, they're, they're meeting their daily needs and then the rest of the time is just resting. And so they're not, they're not operating at that constant level of stress where you think about most people's day, like you're stressed about what time you got to get up because you got to get to the gym on time and someone's on the treadmill you wanted. So you're stressed. And then there's a line at Starbucks. So you're stressed and now there's traffic. <laughs> so you're stressed. And you got to get to work and they're stressed. And it's just stress, stress, stress. And so the thing that should be relieving the stress which is your exercise, ends up augmenting it and adding to it. Uh, but animals don't operate that way. And so that's the cool thing about it is that when you go for a run with a donkey, uh, the donkey is not stressed at all. And so if you're trying to be like hyper and <laughs> do 10-minute miles, the donkey's like, hey, brother, <laughs> I ain't doing 10-minute miles. And, it was, and when you finally come around to that, you just adjust to the donkey's way of thinking. It is so liberating, you can't believe it. And the runs become super enjoyable because you just, when they stop, you stop. And if you stop, you take a breath, have a drink of water, talk to Zeke. And when they run, you run again. It just becomes much more natural, flowing, and relaxed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And you mentioned in the book, um, like Max and Ryan, the Solomon runners, coming out and doing a bro race and there's a short video online of them doing it. And it's, it's funny to watch these like really accomplished runners, you know, build up a pace for a few steps. And then all of a sudden the donkey's just like pulling over and doing circles and you can kind of get that visual sort of sense of what's going on. And I wonder for, from your perspective, like, is that sort of surrender to the way of the donkey you know, for some people, does that happen after a few runs and some people it never happens? Is there some sort of like common theme that you see in terms of how people sort of adjust to that idea? Yeah. You know, it's funny when I saw that video, I really watched it with a lot of apprehension because I think I was, st I was still working on running with Sherman, writing the book when I, I heard that project was going on where 
the two best ultra runners in the world were going to be taking two of the uh, fastest racing burrows and being trained by the best burrow trainer, Meredith Hodges. And it's like they're putting together a dream team for the burrow races where they should go out and kill it. And I was actually, so when I, when I saw the video, I started to watch it. I actually had a lot of apprehension, like, oh man, um, if these guys just go out and kill it in one week, it sort of blows up my whole theory. My whole theory being that it really takes time and patience and a relationship. And you know, these two jabonis are going to go out and just smash the course, walk away with the hardware and move on to the next thing on their bucket list. And so I was actually super gratified. I took really uh, selfish glee in watching it just blow up in their faces uh, because to me, it's like, yeah, there's a vindication. I think every borough racer felt the same way. Like, hey, buddy, you know what? There ain't no shortcuts in borough racing. You pay your dues, you put in your time, or it ain't going to work. And uh, so, yeah, so it was, it was kind of cool to see them, like, the ropes over their shoulders, just kind of trying to drag these donkeys along um, because they just didn't get it. And the thing about it was those donkeys, I know those donkeys, and they're fast runners. And if you had put an exper- experienced borough racer with them, they would have gone really fast. Um, the the problem that those guys had, Max and Ryan had, was that they just hadn't invested enough time in learning how to read the animals and and to see what was going on, and vice versa. You know, the animals are reading you. It's it's a really interesting thing when I'm running with with our big donkey flower. I'll just watch that big eyeball just kind of like rotate back. And she'll just like check me out to see what's going on back there. And as soon as I see her eye, I realize, okay, she's, she's assessing me. Something's going on and I got to figure out what she's up to. Otherwise she's just going to stop or veer off or do something else. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, you know, so much of how we learn to do things and accomplish things is, you know, that sort of strong willpower. I'm going to do it, do it, do it. But it, to run with these burrows, it just seems like it's, you have to sort of learn in a different way that we're not necessarily used to. And I think I'm hoping that to me is like the personal life takeaway. Um, you know, it's, it's about everything. It's about really understanding the person across from you, trying to understand what they're thinking, what they're afraid of, what they want in a nonverbal way rather than just like steaming ahead with what you think is right. And that's not really my temperament. Mm-hmm. You know, I come from a, a much, you know, a different temperament. I come from a yeah. like South Philly, Italian, Irish, you know, go out and get it, get it done kind of mentality. So this approach of taking a breath, thinking, observing before acting is, is still new to me. But I feel like it's really starting to get into my bloodstream. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, coming from that environment as well. And now where you live, sort of surrounded by this Amish community that you're embedded in, that's quite a different shift as well in terms of approach to life and and some of those sort of more, I'm always right and I'm going to do what I'm going to do sort of uh, ideas. Oh, totally. How have you sort of adjusted to that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I had to learn to do was stop talking because you know, being an East Coast guy, I'm not comfortable with like conversational pauses. So if there's a silence, I'm going to fill it with noise. And so it, it was it's been difficult with my Amish and Mennonite neighbors when I first got here, where I'd say hi, they'd say hi, and then there'd be silence. And so I would just leap in, and just start talking some stupid shit. And then I'd pause a little bit, and they wouldn't say anything. So I just motor on ahead. It took me a while to realize it just stop talking. And give them a chance, 
you know? So, you know, my Amish neighbors are much mm-hmm. more reflective and respectful and old-worldly slow about venturing the opinion. And if you don't give them airspace, then they'll just keep silent. So, yeah, things like that. I had to, I had to learn to throttle back in a big way. Yeah. And do you think that has, you know, in turn helped you sort of develop that relationship with, with animals and with nature, with that sort of more patience, quietness? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, again, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the Amish are, are a culture that has, the only culture that has maintained its close personal relationship with animals and also a culture that is completely nonviolence. I, I think there's something there um, that's, that I think, you know, we, we, we strayed away from a long time ago. You know, I think one of the, the main points I was exploring with running with Sherman is that, you know, we, we tend to think that newer is better, technology is better, that, you know, human culture is, is all, always on an upward trajectory of improvements. But then you, you stop and realize, well, you know, maybe not. Maybe we've left things behind that are actually crucial to our, our physical and mental health. And one of them is our you know, relationship with animals, which we had for thousands of years. We were always around animals and we relied on them and we partnered with them. And then very abruptly in our evolutionary history, we just stopped and just cut it off. And, and I feel like we're, we're groping back toward that now, you know, with, with, you know, therapy animals and, and self-assurance animals and the kind of studies they've done where they'll, they'll bring a, a kitten into a cancer ward and suddenly like blood pressure levels just, just drop, you know, and anxiety levels just drop. And so when I'm around my Amish neighbors and I realize that the temperament that they have, the way they treat each other is the same kind of quiet, gentle, reassuring presence you need to have around animals as well. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that there's a hand-in-hand connection between the fact that they are patient and loving and family-oriented and non-grasping, not not greedy, and the fact that they are also super-skilled farmers with with animals as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, So kind of going back to that point about, you know, you being naturally somebody to sort of fill the air, um, running with Sherman was the first time you actually read the audio for the audiobook version of this. I was curious to know how about how that process was for you in sort of stepping into that experience. Oh, you know, it's, uh, it was great. It, it was a real adventure. Um, I was, yeah, you know, I haven't listened to it yet, so I, I, I'm not really sure what opinion to offer because <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm passing judgment on something that was great or, or, or horrific failure. But the experience, it was something I've been working on for a while. So, you know, one thing I realized on book tour, the first time I went on book tour for Born to Run, I thought my goal, I thought my job was to go out and like lecture people, like to deliver like a miniature version of all the stuff that I'd learned about running in story format. And it took me a while to realize that that's just boring. Like nobody wants to sit there and be lectured by some guy uh, up there theorizing about running. And so over time with book events, I started to get more into a relaxed, engaged storytelling mode. And I, I really worked at it. You know, I would go to story slams and get on stage as often as possible to practice oral storytelling. And so I took that into doing the narrative for the audio version of Born to Run. I'm sorry, of Running with Sherman. 
But when I realize as, as I'm reading my own book is that I'm still not writing that way because when you have to read your own prose out loud, you realize how different your writing is from your talking. And so that's something that I'm really glad I did it because for the book I'm working mm. on now, I'm trying to make it much more similar to the way I actually talk and tell stories. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about that because I guess we consume it similarly, but also it is different. You know, um, would you ever consider going back and doing the audio for Born to Run and Natural Born Heroes? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. For Natural Born Heroes, there's, there's a lot I want to do. I, I actually want to rewrite the whole book. I feel like I got way too ambitious with juggling chainsaws in that book. And I, I think I got, I felt like with Born to Run, it was so hard to write Born to Run that by the time I figured out how to tell that story, I just felt like I was like Muhammad Ali, man. I'm like the heavyweight champion of narrative nonfiction and I can do it all. And then I get into Natural Born Heroes <laughs> and I feel like I just did, was trying to do way too much. I had too many narrative threads going in too many different directions. And so what I'd love to do for that book is actually strip it down and shuffle the cards around, shuffle the deck and, and reorder the story. But yeah, I would love to do the narration for both those books. Yeah, I think that would be cool. I mean, as a listener, I find it so much more compelling usually when the author is the one reading it. It just feels charged with uh, a different level of energy and intimacy that that makes it hit home, I find. Yeah, I'm conflicted about that uh, because, on the other hand, professional readers are unbelievable. Uh, I just listened to City of Thieves, and the reader was Ron Perlman, the actor Ron Perlman. Mm. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to get in a ring with that guy. Mm. He was unbelievable. The fact that he could modulate his voice to indicate emotions, that he could develop a slightly different right. accent for different characters. There, those are those are skills I just don't have. So I'm I'm, I'm kind of conflicted. Uh, I agree with you. I think that having somebody tell their own story with their own voice and their own words is really powerful but at the same time these actors that have developed this skill set like that's that's not to be taken lightly yeah absolutely actually that's a good point to make too especially with portraying those other characters in the mix um a couple months ago my girlfriend and i listened to the first harry potter book on audio and i was amazed at how well the the person reading it could take the form of all the different characters because there's obviously quite a variety in the story like that that's crazy and you know and each one of those books is like 700 pages too. So mm -hmm. uh, that is a big challenge to take that on. Yeah. So um, about in maybe January or so, I was researching a little bit on a guy that I was doing a podcast with. His name is Mike Spino, and he's sort of a teacher of um, mindful running. And he worked at Esalen in the 70s. And one, a person that he was really learning a lot from was Percy Sarity. And when I was researching him, there was a story on Outside that came up that you wrote about Percy. And he just sounds like such an interesting character. I was wondering if, um, one, you could share a little bit about what you found about him. And also, are there other characters like that that just, you know, could be in a book or could be the subject of a book, but just haven't fit into things as they've unfolded for you? Well, first of all, you are the last living human to properly pronounce Percy Sarudi's name. Uh, everybody pronounces it Sarudi, and, and they're all wrong. You got it right. So uh, that's very cool. 
Yeah. So this was this was a fascinating thing for me, and it's, this is what really kind of set the Roman candles off in my head when I started researching Born to Run, because you know. There, at the time, there really wasn't much being written about running, and it was kind of the same thing over and over again. And and to this day, most of the books about running really kind of are the same book over and over. It's like one person's struggle against adversity. You know, they had some problem in their life, and they mm-hmm. took on running, and they come up against a challenge that they didn't think they could do, but they did it. And it's that same story over and over. And what we are missing out on is that there's this whole treasure trove of really cool, innovative thinkers and characters and personalities that have been doing all kinds of really interesting, like outlandish stuff forever. And their stories just kind of fall by the wayside. And for me, I only discovered that when, again, when I started working on Born to Run and I would like go to Barnes and Nobles and look at the bookshelf and like the three or four books there were all basically the same book in different form. But then I started going back through out-of-print books and all these like old books about Percy Sarity and Arthur Lydiard and a guy named Ron Dawes, you know, who has a book called The Instant Olympian. And there's all kinds of amazing stuff out there. And what I like about it is that, you know, it was only in really the 80s and 90s when technology started to take over. But prior to like everybody getting all obsessive about a piece of carbon in the in the running shoe. Prior to that, it wasn't about the technology. It was always about the training. It was always about what you did with your body, what you ate, how you slept, where you ran, how far you ran. And you had guys like Billy Mills, you know, uh, out there in the Dakotas, like practicing by himself and trying to figure out, like, how do I, as a poor uh, Native American kid, figure out how to run a 10,000 meters faster than anybody else in the world? And it was that personal experimentation that was going on all over the world. Like, think about the the race. There's that great book called The Perfect Mile, uh, Neil Bascom's book. So there were these like personal running rocket scientists all around the world trying to figure out how to break the four-minute mile. And so there's, you know, one dude in Australia and someone else in the UK and someone else up in Sweden and another guy out in Oklahoma. And to me, those stories were all out there and they're fascinating uh, because Again, it's not trying to buy your way to glory. It's trying to Mm -hmm. figure out, uh, sort of crack the code of human performance in in a natural way. So, yeah, uh, Percy Surdy was one of those dudes, man, just totally off the reservation, half nuts, uh, drinker, smoker on the edge of death and brought himself back from it. And then he began training guys that he had no business training. You know, he's training Olympic athletes and yet he had unbelievable success uh, <laughs> because he was able to use himself as like a one-man learning lab and, and turn those stories and those um, methods over to stronger athletes. Yeah, I think that idea of sort of a patient experimentation with yourself is such an interesting way to approach any sort of movement or exercise practice. And, you know, I think that kind of like we were talking about keeps you so much more present and less just sort of attached to the results and and can make it so much more fun and a richer experience. I agree with you. And I I think it gets back to the idea of craftsmanship. You know, I think that Mm. things that are easy, that are easy to master are kind of boring and things that are intricate, that, that force you to go slowly and practice a lot you're not going to get the immediate gratification, but you're going to develop a skill that becomes really absorbing. And maybe that's one thing we've really lost a lot of in 
contemporary life is is an appreciation of craftsmanship because most of us just don't know how to do anything. You know, um, we don't know how to fix our cars. We don't know how to build our own shoes. Uh, one of the things I, I thought was kind of fascinating about uh, the current quarantine is that everyone's become like sourdough bakers. But, you know, baking bread was just a common yeah. experience. But it's now we're like rediscovering the art of, of baking. Uh, so I, I think we've, to a large extent, have lost the gratification of learning how to do things slowly and patiently for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And it is a good opportunity now to to sit with some of those practices and and uh, commit ourselves to that different crafts and sort of develop that a little bit more patience and enjoyment of the slow process. And to me, that's what is I think, missing from a lot of our um, athletics, you know, and, and, and physical health is that we want we want the goal, we want the end result, we don't want the process. And so, you know, we're so focused mm-hmm. on running as fast as we can, as far as we can. But the actual day-to-day of going slowly, of learning how to run properly, of, how, of being satisfied with incremental progress, um, that is what, is what has made getting in shape so unpleasant for a lot of people, that they want the result today mm-hmm. as opposed to just enjoying the, the, the long journey to get there. Yeah. And sort of speaking of long journeys, the Leadville 100 mile race is, you know, become a pretty iconic one in terms of races in the U.S. and partially due to your book as well. And I read that you have run it once, but you didn't finish it. So I was curious to know how that experience was in terms of, you know, that sort of long journey. And I'm sure you prepared for it on to some extent, but then not sort of getting that, um, finished metal accomplishment as well. Yeah, I'll tell you, not finishing the Leadville 100 was one of the, like, the greatest experiences of my life <laughs> because the moment I stopped, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I got timed out at the 50-mile turnaround in Winfield. And the only horrible thing that could have happened to me at that moment is if they just patted me on the back and told me to keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, so here, here's the thing about that. I, I, I ran that the same year I started running. So when I started, when I got this idea of going down to the Copper Canyon for Caballo's race, I started training for it in, in September. And so I had, you know, roughly eight months or so to train up for a 50 mile race. And I went from zero to 50 in about eight months and um, went down for the Copper Canyon race. And then when I came home, I, I thought, hey, this could be this could be a good book. And, and so I began researching the book. And one of the things I wanted to do for my research was have boots on the ground for the Leadville Trail 100. You know, it's, a, it's an important part of the history of, of ultra running and of the Tarahumara. So I called up Ken Clover, the race director, and said, hey, can I get access to the course so I can actually see what the race is like? And he's like, yeah, you can have access. You can put on your big boy pants and run the fucking race. <laughs> And it's no, no, I'm not really, I'm not ready for that at all. And he's, oh, you're not ready. Oh, I, I didn't realize you're in a wheelchair. I'm sorry. I, I would have apologized if you're in a wheelchair because I'm 76 years old and I'm ready for the race. What's your problem? And, <laughs> and he basically just bullied me and taunted me and harassed me into it. And by the end of the conversation with this guy on the phone, I'm like, yeah, like, what's wrong with me? I can <laughs> do this. And the true answer is no, you can't, you idiot. You know, but, but I did train. I trained uh, really well and really hard. And went into it thinking I could do it, but man, dude, a hundred miles 
And to this day, a hundred miles is just really, really <laughs> far. And, uh, um, Eric Gordon, the guy, the guy who trained me for the Born to Run race, trained me for this race too. And he did, you know, he did a spectacular job with the raw materials that was dumped in his lap, <laughs> meaning me. But I came away from it thinking that I will never be comfortable with that distance. Um, there is something that is different about the people who are comfortable with, the, with that distance and me. Uh, I, I just don't get it. Uh, so I don't think. So there are two things. One is at that moment, uh, look, man, I, I had not enough miles on my odometer to take mm-hmm. on a hundred mile race. But on the other hand, now years later, I still would. Ne- I don't think I could ever finish a hundred mile race. I just it's something that's beyond my my grasp. And do you think that's a physical thing or a mental thing? I really don't know, and that's one of the great enduring mysteries of ultra running. I. I'd like to believe it's only a mental thing, but that's also part of it as well. Because even now, like I've done a few 50Ks, and after I've gone about 20, <laughs> 25 miles, I'm kind of like, all right, I get the point. Why am I still running? You know, I've been out here for a few hours now. It's enjoyable. You know, I've had a lot of great views. I've eaten the French fries at the A stations. Why am I still moving? And so there's part of it is, of me is kind of like the, uh, the pointlessness of it. Mm-hmm. Like when I get tired, like I don't enjoy this feeling. Why should I continue feeling this way when it sucks? So that's probably ultimately the answer. Um, because, you know, when I, when I timed out at Leadville, I came down from Hope Pass, I come down the mountain, I run into Winfield, I turn around, I was about 45 minutes beyond the cutoff. You know, they stop you to take your bracelet off. I was like feeling like such relief. Like, thank God, I'm so tired. But then I get in the car and like, you know, had a soda and we're driving mm-hmm. back to our cabin. And about half an hour later, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't feel that bad anymore. Like maybe if I just like sat down and had a sandwich, I, I probably could have kept on going. But um, mm-hmm. so I don't know. Uh, but ultimately, what I think what it comes down to is I just didn't want to keep on going. And so so maybe that that's the answer right there is that you're really running to your level of pleasure. Barefoot Ted said something. What was Barefoot Ted's quote? Yeah, so Barefoot Ted would have this thing. He'd say, Mm -hmm. I'm not testing the limits of what's possible. I'm testing the limits of what's pleasurable. And that's what it's all about. And I've never been able to extend the range of what's pleasurable for me to the point where (laughs) it gets to 100 miles. Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it because it's obviously not your typical version of pleasure, no matter who you are when it's 50, 100 miles and beyond that. But I wonder, you know, you've spent a lot of time with ultra runners now over the years. And is there any sort of common characteristic that you see in the way that they approach that sort of distance from a mental side? No, I really don't. Um, They are all their own uh, mixed bag of eccentricities. And that's not even right. No, I shouldn't even say eccentricities. You sit down with Scott York, he's the normalest guy in the world. Kind, attentive, patient, funny. And yet somehow this dude can win seven Western states in a row. And whatever is driving that kind of uh, masochism, you know, he he had to be in, in extreme pain I mean, think about this. You win mm-hmm. three Western states. Man, there's a bullseye on your back. Mm-hmm. Everyone's gunning for you. Every year, it's going to get harder, harder, and more painful. Mm-hmm. So, Spartathlon, 152 miles, you know, up and down mountains. Um, 
So no, I, I don't get it. There's nothing in his psychological profile, I think, that would tip you off that this guy is capable of that. And again, you know, Chrissy Mel, very different. There's this terrific woman named Maya Detmer. Uh, she's a trauma nurse in Nevada and then runs these uh, last man standing races. You meet her, she's bubbly, she's sunny, she's kind, she works with hurt people, and yet she can go out and just grind out, you know, 200 miles nonstop. So I don't, um, I don't, I don't know what the psychological profile is that makes that possible. Yeah, it's so interesting. It was cool to hear in Running with Sherman that you sort of reconnected with Eric Orton, who had trained you for the Born to Run book. And I was just wondering if, like, through these different books, like, is that community that you've built? Are there other relationships that have lasted sort of and continued beyond the research and writing of these stories? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think one of the really galvanizing, galvanizing experiences was that Copper Canyon race, because all of us who were down there remained really close. And I kind of wonder about that because it's remained one of the, the more kind of joyful friendship experiences mm -hmm. of my life. And uh, I wonder why. I wonder if it's because it was a self-selecting process, like, you know, only the weirdos who would sign up for a trip like that, you know, are the kind of people that are going to be entertaining and offbeat and will be, you know, sort of endlessly joyful and people you want to seek out or whether there's something about the experience which which kind of bonded us. I, I don't know, but whenever I see Luis Escobar, I'm always super happy, and, and Ted's come out here a few times to visit, and I've seen him out on the West Coast, and uh, Eric, I just, you know, immensely respect his knowledge and appreciate what he did for me, so I saw Jen in Salt Lake not too long ago, um, Billy in Hawaii, so yeah, we've all remained in each other's lives, and to me, they are just some of the more like exciting and kind of, I don't know, uh, people that I, I really love and like a lot. Uh, and I, I think it's just because the people that are willing to put themselves out there are people that are always going to have my, my interest and attention. Yeah, I imagine it must be a combination of those things you listed. But going on an adventure like that, that's just so unknown. I mean, that the whole story leading up to you know people signing up for this thing and then a handful of you guys showing up and then heading down there it just seems so wild and it's hard to imagine you know now just being like oh i heard about this crazy thing i'm gonna go show up at this hotel and see what happens <laughs> you know i don't think there's too many people that are gonna choose to do that you know i, I think there's probably more people than you think you know uh and that's been my experience what's been kind of What's been kind of fun about yeah, it, you know, maybe. even with running with Sherman, when I talked to Zeke the first time and he's home from college, he was uh, dealing with some hard, hard issues. And I said, hey, listen, dude, uh, you can run with us, but we're doing this thing with donkeys. Are you in? And he's like, oh, I guess so. And to have him like just kind of leap in both feet to this bizarre adventure, like train these donkeys in Pennsylvania and then take them to Colorado. And he and I and, and my wife and, and, and Zika have become really close since then too. So it's probably a combination of the temperament, which makes you open to that kind of thing. And then the sort of shared mm. respect from sort of seeing it all through together. But I, I think out there all the time, there are these little bands, these little tribes that are out there, jumping mm -hmm. into that kind of shit and, and 
remaining close knit ever, you know, ever after. Yeah, totally. Well, speaking of that sort of close knit nature, running with Sherman definitely involves a little bit more of an intimate group of people, like with your wife and your family and your really your neighbors and then animals that you've adopted. I wonder how that was sort of opening up that part of your life more so. It was really strange and a good experience because it's something that I've been pushed to for years and I wasn't really comfortable with. Um, you know, when I was working on Born to Run, I turned in the draft and my editor said, yeah, listen, you got to put more of you in this book. And I was like, eh, I don't think so, man. Like, clearly I'm the least interesting guy in this whole story. You know, you got a guy named Caballo Blanco. He's way mm. more interesting than some <laughs> journals from Pennsylvania. And my editor's like, no, but people need to see this thing through your eyes. You got to be their, their avatar. You know, you got to be their proxy in this adventure. And so I put myself a little bit into Born to Run and a little bit more in Natural Born Heroes. And finally, only with Running with Sherman, there was no way around it. It was a story that it was, it was my story. So it had to be a first person story. Mm -hmm. So I finally, I think I gave in to, um, a way of storytelling that I'd not been comfortable with before. And I'm glad I did because it's about time I learned how to do that. But you know, when you come from a, a hard news background, when you're a news reporter, you're always drilled to keep yourself out of the story. So it's very hard to unlearn that habit. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we've been talking a lot about like sort of the craft of running and has that influenced the craft of writing for you? It influenced it really dramatically right from the beginning because I'd never tried to write anything remotely as complicated and as long as a book. And so I just felt out of my depth really quickly. Um, I just didn't know how to do it. And so... You know, you're sitting down at the desk and nothing's working. And I would just get out the door and run. And what I would find is that there's something about putting yourself into physical distress, which drowns out emotional distress. That when, when you can't breathe and your legs are hurting, you're trying to go up a hill, you can't think about anything except that hill. And so whatever is occupying your brain, it just gets mm. flushed out, uh, it, which is conversely, uh, a friend of mine, Dan Edwards, <laughs> the great parkour coach in the UK, he says that biologically, you cannot be unhappy when you're eating. So I, I feel like I've kind of put this to the test. Like I've never been unhappy when I'm eating food. Like food always instantly makes you feel better. And so um, that's Dan's theory. Again, I'm not sure if it's actually based on science, but it's, it's, it seems to work. But anyway, so what, what, what I would find is that whenever I was struggling with the writing, that was my cue, get outside right now and go for a run. And within 20 minutes, you have left the emotional difficulty behind and you come back fresh and you sit down, you're in a better headspace, you're emotionally feeling better, your self-doubt has been dialed back a little bit and you can get to work. And then the second thing about it was where I found about running is that there's something about the rhythm, the breathing of mm -hmm. a nice steady pace that to me sort of is akin to natural storytelling. I feel like my running pace matches more closely my natural speaking pace. And so when I'm sitting down staring at a screen, I don't have a rhythm or a pace that lets the words come. But when I'm running, it's almost like listening to music or something. There's a, there's a rhythm and a beat and a meter there 
And so the story starts to spill out in my head while I'm running. And then I can come back and sit down and then reproduce that uh, on the page. So for me, those two things became inextricable. If I couldn't run, I, I don't see how I'd be able to write anything. Yeah, that's so cool. I think, you know, our bodies are these incredible, you know, machines in some way that are you generally striving to find that homeostasis and harmony. So it's almost like using that run as a way to retune yourself to that natural harmony and cadence, which is really cool. And definitely, I imagine, you know, a more challenging, but a healthier option than it is to reach for food, which a lot of people obviously do to sort of find that moment of happiness or escape from whatever emotional struggle, be it writing or otherwise. And, and I was that guy first too. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think back on it now. I used to stock my desk drawers with like snacks. I would have like, you know, Things like Oreos and M and M's and Doritos. I it would be it would be like a like a larder, like a pantry, in my desk, and I would almost like eat in time. You know, like typing with the right hand and, and stuffing my face with the left hand. Like I was that guy, mm. and that was that was prior to Born to Run. But what I found the other thing was that you know exercise is a great natural uh, appetite suppressant. But it's also a self-esteem booster. So the gratification you get from food, you can just get it from just rambling around outside for a little while. So um, I sort of got out of that habit without even thinking about it. I just never replenish the desk drawers ever again. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's really cool how we can sort of reprogram our ourselves in that way to get outside or you know, things like even just taking a cold shower can be so much more effective as well in terms of like that state change, it seems like. Funny, I've been experimenting with that. So <laughs> I wrote about it in Running with Sherman. So it was Zeke that really kind of tipped me off toward, you know, Wim Hof. And he was using cold immersion. It was Zeke as a way of battling depression. And so I got this thing in my mind, like, you know what? I got a creek right in front of the house. Nothing's stopping me every single day. I'm going to get in the water. And that lasts up until around like November one year. Then I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> but I, I restarted it again. And, and I've gone in every day. And right now, like the temperature is in the 30s last night. And I went in this morning. And so I got to ask you about this. So I, I don't follow the Wim Hof method because I'm uncomfortable with the breathing exercises. It makes me feel lightheaded. So I just basically just jump in the water and hang out there as long as I can. Is there any benefit to that at all, Ryan, or am I just like getting wet? I think there still is benefit. I mean, I think that there's like a, you know, for your body, there is some physical benefits with like, you know, circulation. Cause you know, as the, as you get in that sort of a cold, the blood is coming into your torso and leaving your limbs and then you're getting out. So it's like pumping that circulation. Um, you know, it's good for inflammation, just like icing and things like that. But I think just like that spiritual practice of like putting yourself into that sort of uncomfortable scenario as well each day and making a practice of it is really powerful emotionally and psychologically. Explain that to me. So you say that there's a spiritual benefit of putting yourself into an uncomfortable situation? Yeah. Well, I mean, from my experience, I find that can be with like a, you know, similar approach to something like the the long distances that people are running at times or, um, you know, it's just like trying something new going into the unknown is, 
is such a powerful experience and being able to sort of take that beginner's mind. Um, and then also like presence, you know, like so much of meditation is about being present with, with each breath. And when you put yourself into 30, 40 degree water, it's pretty hard to not be present in that moment, I think for the most part. (laughs) And, you know, you can also like, (laughs) and you know, training this sort of nervous system to go along with that. Like, even if you don't do the Wim Hof breathing before getting in the cold, if you just take a, you know, five or 10 deep inhales and exhales and you breathe out as you get into the cold that's sort of telling your nervous system that you're okay and you're safe rather than jumping in and just being like (gasps) and sort of losing that sort of um calmness as well that makes me feel good because yeah i've tried doing um wim's breathing techniques and, and again this is me stopping short of the lesson before I've actually learned it. I think if I had followed through and did it enough, I would probably get over the sense of lightheadedness. But um, it's one of these things where whenever I feel, yeah, woozy like that, it, I, uh, it makes me feel anxious. I don't like it. So whenever I've done like VO2 um, max <laughs> tests, you know, where you're you know, running with the, with the face mask on, mm-hmm. I just start to get that panicky feeling as soon as I can't breathe. So what I've done instead is kind of adapted sort of, I think, unconsciously, my own um, response mechanism, which is almost exactly what you're describing. So before you go in the water, you start to almost unconsciously start to, like, deep breathe, kind of like, okay, like, here I go. And you start to suck in those big breaths. And then once I'm in the water, I have this technique of uh, always looking upstream. So looking upstream toward the ripples coming toward me. And there's this kind of little play of water sort of tumbling over rocks. And it's this very kind of hypnotic and glittering um, view you have. And so as soon as I'm in the water and I'm, you know, freezing my stones off, I just always force myself to turn around and look upstream and just watch the light on those ripples. And it's very absorbing and very calming. And you start to relax into that. And it sort of takes away that sense of, uh, of panic. Yeah, that's really nice. I like that idea. I mean, it's very similar to watching your breath or listening to your breath and, you know, being able to do that in nature, watching a, a flame if you're meditating or listening to the wind, you know, all those pieces, you know, are, you know, that sort of nature as well as what our bodies are trying to harmonize with. So that's a great way to do it in nature like that. Cool. Well, I'm glad I accidentally found something, but, and, and there is something to what you're saying. This, this, this ritualization of, you know, I've decided I'm going to do this every day. I'm not even sure if it's helping, but I'm going to do it anyway. And maybe just the commitment is going to be, you know, a reward enough. Yeah. I think it is. I mean, cause there's no real goal or outcome that you're attached to, you know, and it's just like to relate it back to running, you know, it could just be like, I'm going to run five kilometers once a week. And then before you know it, you're running 10 kilometers a couple times a week and it's much easier to get in the cold water. And I think it just sort of builds up what we subconsciously believe we're capable of in many ways. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And again, there's that thing too, you know, when you get out of the water, it never feels like a bad idea. Like you get out and you do feel euphoric. You feel just great. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And I'm in a a men's group and we do Wim Hof breathing at the start of each uh, session that we have. And probably 80% of the time I don't want to do it. And a hundred percent of the time I feel better after we do it. Even getting into the water, like you're walking in and you think, oh, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? 
And then when you're in it, like, this is not that bad. You know, it, it is, <laughs> it's the dread. It's that moment of doubt before you do it, which, you know, I think it's, it's that, that one step that you just got to get past it and you're fine. Yeah. And I think, and the more you overcome that, the sort of more it diminishes and then the more you can sort of move on to the next step and the next challenge, I think. Right. Because you realize, look, I've done this a million times every time I dreaded it and every time I was glad I did it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you learn to power through those, those last second hesitations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So going back to your books for a moment before we uh, finish up. Um, you know, the stories just feel so ripe with amazing characters and adventures that I feel surprised I haven't seen a film made out of any of them yet. And I know that there's a couple of notes here and there on the internet talking about Born to Run and Matthew McConaughey potentially being in it. But I was curious to know about that process for yourself, you know, seeing that come to life in that way could be exciting and scary. And also if, if any of that um, seems realistic at this point. I tell you, man, that is a whole weird industry, uh, Hollywood film industry, because when, when actually when I bumped into you, the reason I was in LA was because uh, a film director had reached out to me about natural born heroes and he had connected with a screenwriter he really liked. And we had just spent that week pitching Natural Born Heroes to a a bunch of different studios and producers. And so I'm still, I thought it was a sure thing. Like the pitch was strong, the studios were interested, and yet it's still kind of on pause. And same with Born to Run. Uh, It seemed like it was a done deal. McConaughey was on board and it just still hasn't happened. Uh, So I don't know. I I don't understand what what goes on there at all. To me, Born to Run was like, to me, it's like a no-brainer. It's a cool, action-packed film or story. So I don't really have any concern about what a film version of these stories would be like because I feel like I'm just a spectator of stories as well that I I don't really feel like um, I personally own a story. Uh, like Born to Run, it's not really my story. It's it's Ted's story. It's Caballo's story. It's the Tatomata story. I just told my version of it. Ted has his version of it. Jen has her version of it. And I think a filmmaker would have her own version of it. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to say it. So, and the same thing with Running with Sherman. I only had one, actually I had two. I had two caveats. So Running with Sherman has been, uh, the rights have been purchased by Netflix and I had two like deal breaker requirements. Like number one, my wife has to be played by a woman of color. Like absolutely. And the second one, they have to use my nephew's song that he wrote for Running with Sherman. <laughs> and they basically told me, look, go fuck yourself with your song. Everybody's got a nephew with a song. Uh, but other than that, I said, look, as long as you, re- you know, as long as you respect, you know, uh, my wife's eth- ethnicity in the story, I didn't want her being, you know, whitewashed into something else. Apart from that, go for it, man. Tell your version of the story. So uh, I'd be curious to see um, what they do with it and and also when and how. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, hopefully that does move forward. I look forward to, to watching that come to life and in that format as well. Hopefully all the other stories do too. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm curious about it. But yeah, the other thing is, you know, it's one of these things in life where you can only control what you can control. And my my very limited experience with Hollywood is, I don't know what's going on. So mm-hmm. it's clearly beyond anything I can do to influence it. So I just circle back. Like the, the one thing I can do is just write my books. You know, I think books last longer than movies. 
they can have more of an impact and and mm-hmm. resonate further. So I'm just uh, happy with the thing I can do. And if it turns into something else, cool. But if not, I can always just keep doing my own my own thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, with that said, is there anything you can share about the upcoming book you're working on or any other sort of interesting stories you might be going to be putting out soon? Yeah. So I'm working on this book. I'm calling it now King of the Weekend Warriors. I, I don't know if that will be the final one, but I'm looking at two guys who are best friends in New York. And one guy is like super Zen, very chill even though he works in, in high finance, you know, he works on Wall Street with a hedge fund. But personally, he's very just kind of watching the water ripple by kind of guy. And his best friend actually works in a nonprofit. He's very, you know, he works in a humanitarian field, yet he's Mr. Like tightly wound, high stress. And the two of them are best friends. And together they have like set nine different mm-hmm. world records. And kind of below the radar, no one really knows who they are. They're, people aren't aware of them. And what I love is the dynamic between the two of them because they are they're, they are the perfect yin yang of that whole competition dilemma. Um, and I, I really want to explore like their relationship and how it's led them to these achievements, but at the same time, how they're each grappling with how much competition and drive to let into their own lives. And the one guy, you know, the, the guy who's Mr. Tightly Wound, I, I feel like that's his, his Achilles heel, that his love of, of achievement um, is a thing that thwarts him from really being happy. Uh, and that maybe he should edge over a little bit more to the non-competitive side. At the same time, he feels that he needs this in order to, to go on. You know, just like one little anecdote about him with, with Leadville so he has DNF'd at Leadville twice. And to me, like, dude, learn your lesson. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hundred miles at 12,000 feet. You yeah. live in Manhattan and you'll work a stressful job. It's not for you. Yet he's going, well, he was planning to go back this year. Like he just cannot get the monkey off his back. And I, I don't get that. I don't, I don't understand why it's personal to him to have to run that thing. Um, but, but it is. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that maybe kind of ends up he burns his fingers more than he should yeah well i feel like that's you know in very different versions of it a very common story and even for myself like i before getting into sort of this sort of health and wellness realm burnt myself out really badly i was working the 16 17 hour days drinking way too much coffee and then I'd get home and go for a run. So I was just like stressing myself every which way I could and not sleeping enough. So, you know, sometimes it takes a crisis at some point to make us look at ourselves and find a little bit more of a healthy balance. Who who knew that all along you were the guy we were talking about, you know, like this whole conversation really has been about, about you, you know, but that's exactly it. And until (laughs) you have that, I don't know, that experience, which that out-of-body experience, which lets you reflect on what you're doing, then you can really blunder along that way for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And it, sometimes it takes a big event to sort of take those like horse blinders off and be like, oh my gosh, right, this is what right. I've been doing. But, and then hopefully we, hopefully we listen at that point. Yeah. And that's the second thing too, is also receiving the message when it arrives. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I uh, look very much forward to that story as well. And I uh, want to just thank you again for your time today and sharing all your insights and and for sharing your books with the world as well. Um, if there's anywhere people can sort of find you or learn more, um, maybe you can share that before we go. Yeah, sure. I'm kind of nominally online. I tend to basically, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, basically. I kind of edged out of Facebook as soon as I was off of uh, book tour, I kind of stopped paying attention to that. So, um, yeah, if you look for Chris McDougall, Chris McDougall author, um, I'm out there, but, um, mostly when I get into book writing mode, I kind of drop out of sight. So I'll probably be pretty invisible for another year or so and then raging around again Mm -hmm. some more. Well, good luck with that, uh, adventure and journey into that next book and hope you and Sherman and the family are doing well. Thanks to Ryan. And they are doing well. I just finished a run with my daughter and just saw the donkeys a little while ago. So, uh, yeah, man, I really appreciate this conversation and I'm really glad that somehow we bump into each other off of Sunset Boulevard in the middle of, you know, uh, randomly last year. Yeah, me too. Definitely a nice surprise. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.